0: Welcome to Troubleshooting Innovation, a commercial baking podcast sponsored by AB Mori North America, a global leader in yeast and bakery ingredient technology. When it comes to baking, who's behind you matters. I'm your host, Joni Spencer, editor in chief of Commercial Baking, and I'm spending this season with Josh Allen, award-winning artisan baker and founder of Companion Baking in St. Louis. Together, we are discovering new ways to redefine commercial artisan bakery production. In this episode, Josh and I outline some unconventional metrics bakers can use for baselining efficiencies. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining me again this week. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So last week, we had a really interesting discussion about how fixing the trash at your bakery changed really how you operate. So first, I'd love to just quickly recap the impact that that made on the business and how your waste management practices have become a baseline for productivity.
1: Yeah, I think we talked last week about the big measurement that we look at. We look at two things relative to waste. We look at real pounds and kind of a trailing 12-month, you know, how many pounds are we generating on an annual basis? In terms of waste. And that's a combination of both waste for landfill and also composting. So both of our partners and our vendors in that do weigh what they take away from us and send us a report monthly to give us a weight. So it's not a number that we can manipulate here. And then we also look at trash, what we call trash efficiency, which is our sales divided by pounds of trash. And obviously as we retract our business, as we did during the pandemic, or as we grow our business, we just wanna be more efficient with our waste creation. And obviously we're looking to eliminate it completely, but um, that's maybe not realistic in a manufacturing environment, but relative to sales, we want that number to continue to climb. And, and obviously the waste, the real pounds number is gonna go down. I don't like looking at charts that go down. They're not really like psychologically motivating to me. So. <laughs> turning it on its head and looking at trash efficiency is if that's a number that we want to see go up and the sales per pound of trash for us, it's relative to everybody's business is different. But as an example, when we started that metric, I believe we were at about $5 and 80 cents in sales for every pound of trash generated. And we've gotten that number up to almost $13 on an annualized basis. And so, um, you know, almost two and a half times where we started and, It's had a huge impact. And look, it's had the impact where you would expect it to. It's had the impact in gross margin, labor savings, because we're not producing all this product that's never making it to the customer, Mm -hmm. in ingredient savings for the same reason, obviously, but also just the real trash hauling savings has been pretty dramatic, And we've just seen that sort of snowball throughout the bakery. And we've seen it in office supplies because we used to print multiple copies of every invoice that went out. We would ask the question of ourselves, what did we do with that additional copy of that invoice? And we realized that if the customers didn't require proof of signature, that we were just discarding those invoices and those pack slips when they came back to the bakery. So we realized that if we just printed one copy and left it with the customer, That's all that we needed, except for that there were maybe four or five deliveries on a daily basis out of a couple hundred that they required us to, to be able to prove that they signed for the product. So we'd bring those back and keep those, but the rest of them. So that was reams and reams of paper on a weekly basis that we weren't recycling or throwing away or whatever was happening. So it, we tried to trickle that down everywhere that we could and in, in, in all of those different places. We found that composting was less expensive than sending trash to landfill. And so just everywhere that we've been able to look, the waste measurements have had a profound financial impact. It took the bank off of our back. And thankfully, I love the bank. They've been a huge supporter of ours, but it's no fun when they're looking over your shoulder as aggressively as certainly as they were for us.
0: I can only imagine that it's quite a motivator when the bank says we're going to come have a conversation.
1: Yeah, because they bring a team of people that you've never met before. They bring that kind of, I don't know, emergency turnaround team or whatever they call themselves. And it's yeah, it's not a fun time around the conference table.
0: Right. (laughs) Okay, so you said something that I thought was really interesting, how you don't like looking at charts that are trending downward. And so you kind of look at them in a different way to see how you can... See what you're doing right and improve on that. And I think that's a really interesting mindset to have because it can be a little bit demoralizing when you're looking at what's going wrong.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we have a QA metric here that we do. We haven't really landed on a name yet, but essentially it's sales per complaint. And so our QA department obviously logs complaints that come in from distributors, from end customers, um, if there's a product out of spec, if it's a color, you know, what, whatever way, underweight, to overweight, a baking problem, a packing issue, a labeling issue, whatever that might be, we log all of those complaints and we try to resolve them But we were just tracking that number. And that's the same kind of thing, like with real pounds of trash, you want the complaint number to go down, right? But then you're looking at a chart that's going the wrong direction. And so again, sort of flipping it on its head and saying, look, as we grow our business, as long as we can keep our complaints less than where we were previously, as we continue to grow, then we're going to be more efficient and it's going to be less energy. It means we're producing a better quality. It means we're creating better credibility. So we look at that same number, which is sales dollars per complaint. And, you know, establish some goals for that and some baselines for that as we move forward. And that's another terrific thing because it's a great balance against the waste number. I do believe that what gets measured gets managed. And there's a tendency when you're managing trash for folks to want to push product through the system because, okay, I know Josh doesn't want us throwing anything away. So this product may be sort of on the cusp, but let's get it out the door because it, it, maybe it's okay. And what we don't want to do is inadvertently incentivize our teams to send out bad product in an effort to generate less waste. Right. So we've got to make sure we have some balancing metrics to do that. And the trash efficiency one over time will do that, because obviously, if you can't grow your business because you're producing poor quality product, eventually it'll catch up with you in the trash efficiency but it'll catch up with you faster in the sales per complaint. Yeah. And so if we're logging a ton of complaints and a ton of issues, then we can look at that in conjunction with the trash efficiency and say, okay, it's great that the trash numbers are getting better, but, we're sending out poor product and we got to fix that first. And so we try to have those kind of balances and the sales per complaint one is is a great check on quality and, and another great one to celebrate versus celebrating the number of complaints, right? Like nobody wants to talk about that as much as it's important to pay attention to it.
0: I really love this. This is incredibly fascinating because I haven't really heard of a bakery using a customer complaint as a metric. That's incredible. And I love how you use it in conjunction with fixing the trash because you're right. That can inherently become a risk. I heard some really good advice once and it was solving a problem by creating another problem is not a solution.
1: Absolutely. Yes, that's absolutely (laughs) the
0: case. It's like an extension of the waste management. So Are we truly solving the waste problem or are we creating a problem elsewhere? Like you're taking it to the next step. And then I also like that you're using it as a positive to say, here's how we're celebrating, how we're fixing those customer complaints. That's incredible.
1: If the pandemic has taught us anything or has taught me anything, I won't put words in anybody else, what what (laughs) I've learned through the pandemic is that it's really difficult to motivate people to line my pockets with more money, like to to go out on the floor and say, okay, let's really drive this gross margin or let's really knock this operating income out of the, out of the park. You know, it's important and a sustainable business needs to generate income to be able to take care of all the things that it wants to take care of. and, And I certainly believe that, but I do believe there are ways in which we can measure success and find ways to celebrate things that in the end will create a very viable, sustainable business without necessarily having to talk directly about reduction of labor costs or ingredient cost as a percentage of sales. I mean, we're paying attention to those things, don't get me wrong, but when we talk about like a a scorecard for our business and the transparency of inviting everybody into that process and doing our best to make sure everybody on the floor and in the dish room and involved in the sanitation team and, and all of that really understands if we're doing a good job or not, then that's not a huge motivating factor, at least currently in the marketplace that we're seeing. So we need to create some metrics that people can get excited about. And people have gotten excited about trash and its reduction, and they have gotten excited about, you know, if we're really talking about taking care of the customer, then if we can sell more stuff per every time the customer finds a problem with us, then we're doing a good job. And look, in the end, we know that yields better profitability. That's just kind of intuitive. But We don't have to talk about it that way. We can talk about it in in other terms. Everybody calls a customer service desk when they have a problem. Everybody complains to a manager or writes a Yelp review when they have a problem. So they understand complaints and it's an easy thing to talk about. So how do we reduce complaints? This is what this product is supposed to look like. This is how many are supposed to go in the box. This is what we're trying to do to take care of our customer. Let's do that and get less of those complaints. It's a really easy thing for everybody here to get their arms around and understand.
0: I like the concept of looking at these metrics from the point of view of every aspect of the bakery, because you're right. If someone is coming in for a certain amount of hours a day and they're in maintenance or they're in sanitation, they're not thinking about metrics and the success of the company in the same way someone in R&D would be thinking about it or someone on the sales side or obviously in accounting. So I think that's great that you're really looking at it holistically. And when you said that, you mentioned a scorecard. So if you were to sketch out a scorecard of your metrics and business success what would that scorecard look like after you've got the trash and you've got the complaints what are some other line items that would be on that scorecard
1: Well, we talked last week or the week before about our four C's and the first C in our four C's is our companion. So if we believe that our first obligation is to take care of our own folks, then safety has to be on there. So safety is on there for us. And so we track safety through injury frequency rate, which is a fairly common metric. So the formula, the simple formula is accidents- when we use lost time accidents, so an accident that would keep somebody Mm -hmm. from being able to finish a shift or come the next day to their shift or multiple shifts, as opposed to somebody who cuts their finger and puts a Band-Aid on and comes back on the floor. So lost time incidents times 200,000 divided by the hours worked in the bakery. So what that basically gives us is for every hundred people, because 200,000 is roughly what a hundred people would work, you know, full time in a year. For every hundred people, how many injuries are we having on an annual basis? And there are metrics across all industries and across all spectrums and across all sizes of companies that we can compare ourselves to, because we take it per hundred employees. And if you Google IFR, you'll also sometimes they do it per million hours worked. We do it per two hundred thousand because, as opposed to looking at a five hundred. You know, it's easier to talk about int- internally. We're not quite at 100 people, um, but it's easy to say, hey, if we had 100 people on the floor, this is how many injuries we would expect to have. And look, if, if it's about safety, we've got to drive that number down, right? And we've got to help each other drive that number down. And again, going back to that idea of what gets measured gets managed, If we're if we're just thinking about it, the number comes down because people are starting to look out for each other. Hey, Josh, every month, Josh stops us and tells us what our IFR is and we want it to be smaller you know we want that number to be better than it was before and so i'm going to pay attention i'm going to say hey these pans are stacked too high hey that cart has got a bad wheel on it hey there's a little lip when you roll in and out of the oven that we ought to get fixed things that maybe we weren't thinking about before that we're now thinking about because we're talking about it there's so many things that folks do in bakeries that you just sort of do because that's the way you've always done it. And it's interesting. Since we changed it, we made one simple change a few months ago that I mean it's been 30 years we've been baking and we've always loaded a rack oven, you know, with no gloves on because everybody was comfortable doing it. You push the rack in, you turn the timer on. When you come back, you put the gloves on because obviously the rack's hot. Right. Well, we had a handful of burns and somebody said, Why don't we just why don't we just load the oven with the gloves on? Why don't we just change that? We have so many new people, so many people who aren't so comfortable pushing around a rack with strap pans that are heavy or or various things that can be kind of precarious. Let's put the gloves on before we load the oven. We haven't had a burn since on the ovens, which, you know, burns are terrible, like the burns suck and and they're they're painful and they take a long time to heal and you're going to potentially miss work depending on how bad it is, especially when it's on your hands. And so that was an idea that came from just talking about safety more, you know, every day, every meeting, anything that we're doing, we're just, we're updating ourselves on what that safety is. And and we've got to do that. And I believe that we're going to see long-term retention improve because we're paying attention to safety. Because look, people come here Their families trust them when they come that they're going to come back with 10 fingers and 10 toes and that they're going to, you know, and that's really it, right? Like if you trust the people that you work for, you're apt to stay longer and the trust comes from building that credibility. So what are the things that we're doing? We actually stopped everybody the other day because unfortunately in the storm, Last week, we had a slip and fall in the parking lot. You know, we do everything we can inside the bakery. We have a service that comes and ices, but it started to melt and then it refurrows overnight. Somebody hit a patch of ice and fell and, you know, couldn't finish their, couldn't even start their shift and and they're going to be out for a few days. And that's a reportable accident for us that we feel terrible about. We put a new policy in place about how we're going to handle the overnight freeze and thaw issues. But then we also talked about it. And by bringing everybody together and saying, look, this is what happened. We haven't had another one because I think now people are getting out of their car and going, oh, wow, you know, she had a slip and fall. Maybe just I should just pay a little bit more attention. But if we hadn't talked about it, I don't know that we wouldn't have had another one because maybe nobody else would have been paying attention getting out of their car. And it's, you know, there's so many opportunities for accidents to happen. So safety is the number one for us on our scorecard, always needs to be and and will continue to be. We also track retention, just a typical management of retention and turnover. Obviously, it's become a much greater issue in the last two and a half year or two years and will continue to be moving forward. And we look at it in a couple different ways. We look at just a pure turnover calculation, mm-hmm. you know, which is terminations uh, divided by the number of active employees that we have on a regular basis. And then we also look at average tenure. So we take all of our active employees and take the average tenure of that group. And what we've seen, you know, we've lost almost one and a quarter years of average tenure through the pandemic. So a combination of losing some long term people for some various reasons through the pandemic. And then also, as we've rehired, having so many people on staff that are so new that's a it's a pretty big percentage i think we went from seven and a half years down to like six and a quarter years and um, that's a big year i mean we know how long it takes to learn things and we know how much people continue to learn in a bakery environment and how much knowledge they carry in their head and experience and comfortability and and just ease of operation and knowing what to bring back when you go put something down and bring something back with you and so that year and a quarter has been costly and so we've got to continue to pay attention to that it, you know looking at average tenure forces us to not only pay attention to the new folks that are coming in to keep them here but also looking at our long term folks to make sure that we're continuing to provide personal and professional development opportunities for them so that they stay that's a big one for us too as we look at our companions and then sort of from a from a company standpoint our big thing has been, again, through the pandemic, has been fill rate. So for us, if customers place an order, you know how much of that order is making it out the door? And we've certainly struggled with that over the course of, of the pandemic at, at various times. So we look at it both on like a trailing 52 weeks, so what's the annualized fill rate number that we're able to achieve, and then on shorter, more volatile trailing month or trailing four-week basis because that's a hugely important number for us too, because that's about building credibility with our customers. You know, and we, we talk about it on the floor with our team. Like, look, if you have a favorite restaurant that you go to and you love the steak, if you go one week and you order the steak and they say, boy, we know it's great, but we just, we ran out of steak this week do you want to try the chicken you might try the chicken that week cuz you like them and and you, you know you're forgiving of of one week having that issue but you know 2 weeks later you make a reservation you go back and you order the steak and they're like yeah well sorry we don't have it again do you want to try the chicken and you're like you know this is 2 weeks in a row i'm starting to lose <laughs> you're starting to lose my trust i might find another place to go get a steak yeah and we can't afford that it's it's too hard to get a customer it's too hard to keep a customer you know god forbid if they place an order we got to figure out how to fill it And that's a combination from open communication up front, like you place the order for two weeks from now, three weeks from now, whatever it might be with our frozen business, we might need an extra week or let's juggle this PO. Maybe these products are going to be hard for us to make. But if we have that upfront communication and get the PO changed or get the order changed so that we know we can be successful, then they know what they can anticipate. They change the PO and then we can fill what we told them we could do. But you know, through the pandemic, and it's look, it's happened to everybody, and it certainly happened to us. We think everything's fine. And then two days before we have seven people call off sick and all of a sudden we couldn't finish the order um, or we couldn't get it packed, or we had some issues with mixes, or we had to cancel mixes because we didn't have anybody at the end of the shift or whatever, whatever happens. And it's when we don't have that transparency that that credibility starts to suffer. And so fill rate something that even though it was not fun to look at through the pandemic, it's been something that we've paid a lot more attention to. And it's something that we can continue to celebrate as we get better. But it's also a story to tell for new customers as we start to do better. So if our sales team can talk to somebody and say, look, we're running a 92% fill rate you know for the last year even through a pretty difficult time of the pandemic but in the last 4 to 6 weeks we've been running 99% fill rate that starts to build credibility with those customers because they're having issues with other vendors and so if we can lead with that and we can make that part of the conversation it becomes pretty powerful and then it takes it's not about price and it's not about some other things when we we're gonna get you what you need. Yeah, and it sort of changes the conversation. It's you know no different if you've, anybody's tried to buy a car during the pandemic, right? Like you don't get to negotiate on price anymore. You just hope that the car that you want is there, or that you're going to be able to get it in the next six months or whatever period of time that is. And, and price all of a sudden isn't even relevant to the conversation. You know, are you or at least the dickering on price sort of goes away and. Uh, and so it's been really interesting, and, and we've been able to arm our sales team with much more knowledge of that, of the logistics of the supply chain, and they're going to come out stronger because of it. Again, because we're tracking it, and because it's on our, um, because it's on our scorecard, it's important. Um, and then the, the last one is just sort of a productivity. We look at we produce bread that goes into a case, so for us it's cases per man hour. So total cases sold divided by the number of hours that we worked, you know, the week previous. Um, And we look at that number on a regular basis and and a smaller bakery can do, you know, pounds per hour or loaves per hour or whatever metric works. But that productivity measurement, again, for me, what I like about cases or pounds or loaves or something is it takes the dollars out of the conversation. So it it isn't a function of telling a group of people how many dollars in sales or, or were generated against their hours of work, that it's really about what it is that we make. And let's see if we can get more efficient at making more of those things per hour worked. For us we believe that sanitation needs to be in there because if the bakery's not clean and the dishes aren't clean we're not going to be able to be efficient and we believe that our logistics team and our packers and so we we put everybody in the organization in that number because we believe that that overall number is what we need to be able to drive and if we decide we need to hire another person in customer service it's going to affect our cases per man hour and so we got to make sure you know do we have an increase in sales coming to justify the need to to have a new person in customer service because they're gonna impact those productivity measurements.
0: This episode is brought to you by AB Morey North America. Be sure to check out AB Morey North America's new podcast, The Oven Light, available through Apple iTunes and Spotify. Let the expert team from ABMNA shed some light on ingredients, finished baked goods, technical and customer service, and everything in between to create a successful and rewarding baking experience. AB Mori, passionate about baking. Learn more at abmna.com. Okay, so I have a question to go back to the fill rate. When you have those metrics on the fill rate, How do you develop, and it's, this may be an impossible question considering just how unpredictable things are these days in the pandemic, but how do you develop an action plan if your fill rate drops or you see it start to drop where you're like, okay, this is trending in the wrong direction? How do you take those metrics and develop steps? Like what's the, I guess, contingency plan?
1: Well, I'll tell you what we did during the pandemic because we really struggled for people for an extended period of time. And so what we said to ourselves, we looked at it the same way. We use a lot of restaurant analogies here because one, many folks here have come from the industry and two, they just make sense in this business. So we look at a restaurant analogy and we say, look, at seven o'clock, there's 50 seats in a restaurant, right? And we can only seat 50 people. And if we take reservations for 75 people we're going to piss off 25 people. <laughs> like, like they're not going to have anywhere to sit. Right. And the kitchen only has such, they only have the ability to handle a certain velocity of people. We know what the average table turn is. Maybe we see 25 at seven and 25 more at 720 and, or how, you know, however the restaurant can handle that thing. And so really the fill rate problems that we ran into could go all the way back to when we took the order. And if we could fix it at the order point, what we did was we looked at how many cases are we really capable of producing on a weekly basis right now, given our labor challenges. And it wasn't anything we had ever had to think about because we used to just take whatever orders we could get. and We could figure out how to make the bread. And that went away in the pandemic with the labor challenges. So we had a finite number of cases that we could ship. And anytime we took orders from more cases than that, we just failed and so we just put a cap on it we said look i'm sorry reservations for that week are full and here's when i could get you your product and it was difficult at first because they had never heard that from us right people had never heard no um, <laughs> when it related to orders but they appreciated the fact that like if when we said yes that we were going to do better with it so i'm sorry i can't get that to you on tuesday but if you come on friday i could have it or if you're willing to come the following Monday we can have that product produced for you. So really the being honest and really recognizing and learning what we were capable of, and, and we still stumbled. Don't get me wrong. Cause we'd lose a few more people or somebody else would get sick or, you know, our guesstimates of what we were capable of didn't always hit those numbers. But We did much better by limiting that. And we're only now starting to take the cap off of some weeks And as we start to move out of this. And that's the hope, obviously, that that we don't have to do that. But the lesson learned is still that on any regular basis, we know what we can produce. And if we have more orders than that, you know, maybe we're going to have to hire. So if we're starting to see those numbers trending higher, we're going to have to figure something out. But, but really understanding what how many seats do you have and how many seats can your kitchen handle at any one time? And so the way to fix it is, is that forward planning and the true understanding of who, of who you are. Once you've taken the orders and you're just killing yourself, and there, there's really no fallback position at that point.
0: Yeah. And I heard you say, you'll tell a customer, I'm sorry, we can't get that to you by Tuesday, but what we can do is we can get you this by Friday. And I think that's so important. You have to be able to come back with a solution. We can't do this and that you can't just put a period at the end of that statement, right? There has to be a follow-up with a solution.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you got to make sure that you've talked to the right teams inside the bakery to know what that solution is before we before we make that call back. And we all want to answer the customers fast as we can, obviously, but we need to take that minute to take a breath and say, okay, it's going to be no, but it's going to be no with this solution and this option. And I'll tell you that in 99 and a half percent of the time, they took the option. Um, there were instances where somebody said, look, I'm in a panic. I can't do it. And we said, okay, how about if you cut the order in half, like, what do you really need? Yeah, You have. 100 cases on order, what do you really have to have? And they would be like, well, I need these 30 cases because this customer's out of product. Okay, we can get you the 30 and then we'll worry about the rest of it later. Or we could work through that with them, but it opened the door to that sort of communication that didn't ever exist before. You know, It was easy for distributors to be like, no, I'm placing this order and I mean, we have distributors that pre-pandemic, you know, they'd have penalties against you. If you filled less than 98% of the order, there'd be a chargeback. Like the expectation in the industry, as I think it should be, is look, if I'm going to give you an order with whatever lead time you ask for, that you're going to fill the order. Like that's how it works. And yeah. it's only in the last couple of years that we have so much volatility everywhere that, that that they they backed off on that, thankfully. And at the same time, it opened up the opportunities for conversation. And that's all this is. Like it's about the relationship. Yeah. It all goes back to the relationship. And if we're honest with people, people want to help, right? Like if you say I'm in big trouble here, I'm really struggling, this is what I can do is that okay? In almost every instance they'll say that's okay. But most of us were too embarrassed to ask or afraid to ask or something like that and so you kept saying sure I'll have it and then you put 25% of it on the truck and then they get irritated and That costs them money because they sent a truck or you shipped a truck that's only 25% full. Like there's so much inefficiencies in the lack of honesty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about the average tenure of your employees and with that fill rate, part of the factor in the struggles that you had with the fill rate were if you didn't have the labor. So you said that you've noticed in the past couple of years that the tenure you've lost about a year and a half off the average tenure of your employees, right? Yes. Okay. And so I know you're working to get that back up, but again, I have a journalism degree, so math is not my strong suit. So what is sort of the formula and how long does it take? If you lose a year and a half off of the average tenure, how long does it take to get that year and a half back?
1: Uh, I mean, that's that's math, right? So Uh it's dependent on how many people you have and how many new people you add also. So if you stopped hiring and everybody stayed, then probably more quickly, that number will start to go up because everybody that's here starts to have more tenure every month. But, you know, with the natural course of things and again, with the volatility and people making different kinds of decisions than they used to make, there's still a fair bit of volatility, both with long term and short term people. Every time you hire somebody new, you're starting with somebody with zero tenure. Um, And so it depends if you're hiring a ton of people, then that number is going to continue to go down for a while because you're adding a lot of new people. It it really, it's just a different way to look at that retention number and look at that workforce number. So I guess the answer to a journalist would be, it depends. And uh, even to somebody who pretends to know math, I think it still depends. Um, (laughs) And so I think, I guess my answer to that is it's going to take a while because we are growing as the pandemic is sort of starting to wane. We know that it's not gone and we're going to deal with whatever we're going to deal with. But at this moment, we're seeing growth, but we need more people in order to achieve that. And so it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think it's definitely a lagging indicator of the pandemic because that number will continue to go down as we hire new folks. But it's still something to pay attention to over time and start to see if there's a sweet spot or see if when it turns Do we see any changes? I mean, to me, tracking all this stuff is interesting, but where it really gets interesting is when you can look at the curve of any of these sort of non-traditional metrics and then put them up against gross margin or operating income or whatever it is and start to see, okay, when we get safety to this number or we get trash efficiency to this number, that's when we start to really see and drive profitability. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for the leadership of the organization, that's what we're trying to do. And we believe that these metrics on our scorecard will have a positive impact financially, but that's just an assumption. And then we have to prove it. So we still talk about it internally. We talk about the scorecard with everybody on the floor, and then we got to start to weigh those scorecard metrics against the actual financial metrics and make sure that those things are headed in the right direction, because we may find that driving a certain number in the end doesn't drive profitability. And then, if what measured gets managed, then we got to stop measuring it because it's not the right thing to be looking at. And and we've certainly those mistakes certainly can happen. I still think they can be interesting and things to learn from, or we can understand why. And maybe it's tweaking it or looking at it slightly differently. But all of that stuff is sort of important to look at in concert with the financial aspect of the business.
0: And you know, that's funny. I was going to say if you look at. The scorecard and then you compare it against the financials and it's not there. My initial thought was, well, then what do you do? <laughs> so I like how you said you have to tweak it or find different metrics.
1: You do sort of have to believe in them enough to know there are certain points. I will say during the pandemic that the depressed sales and the challenges of the pandemic It was very difficult, it has been very difficult for us to make any money and to show any real level of profitability through what we're dealing with. That being said, we can look at the velocity of things going the wrong way and the financials slowing down as we turn some of these metrics around. It might be later on that we can really marry them up. I mean, the last two years have been such an anomaly as it relates to so many different things that we have to believe that the metrics are the right thing. And we've had enough experience pre pandemic with a lot of these metrics to know that they work. Mm -hmm. And so it's still worth driving them. Even if our sales are go down 60%, like they did you know, for the first eight or 10 months of the, it didn't keep us from paying attention to trash, even when we weren't going to make any money with sales down that far, but that doesn't mean that we stop paying attention to trash.
0: Right. So just kind of two thoughts that I had. One is there has to be a level of hypothesizing, I guess, before you decide to dive into non-traditional metrics. You can't just think this is something cool that we should measure and then cross our fingers and hope that it supports the profitability. You really have to sit down and say, okay, these are things that we should be measuring so that we can manage them because we have a reason to believe that managing these specific aspects will lead to better profitability, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think some of it comes with experience. Some of it comes from listening to other folks in the industry and what they're doing. And a lot of it comes from listening to folks in other industries because in the end, we're manufacturers and it's not that different than making anything we happen to we get a kick out of it because we make something that we love and we like to to eat what we make and there is there's is an element of bakery that's special but it's not different and mm-hmm. so i think there's so many places in which you can turn to to learn some of the stuff and pay attention to some of these things and you know the internet is a great resource for looking at non-conventional metrics and conventions and educational opportunities and all that stuff exist and so Yeah. But at an end moment, you're going to have to say, okay, I believe that paying attention to safety for me is going to be a metric that drives better retention. And it's going to help our production because if we keep our people working and on the floor, as opposed to out because they've hurt themselves, you know, we're going to make better product. You got to believe all that stuff and think that there's going to be an effect down the road. Mm
0: -hmm. This is my last observation. I think it's going to be a A good closing thought and it goes back to one of the first things that you said in this conversation and that is you don't want to have your companions have an assumption that it's about lining your pockets and would you say is it a fair assumption that when you have these types of metrics um, with the waste management and the companion safety and the fill rate and the retention, like these are all things, like you said, it leads people to really be able to participate and feel like they have a hand in making these changes. So then when they do lead to profitability, it's not Josh's company is better. It's our company is better because we participated in this.
1: I absolutely believe that. And I also believe that it's a lot more fun to celebrate the success of a group than it is to celebrate the success of a business owner. And so much of this, again, it's so hard to think pre-pandemic because it's been so long, but what it has given us are things to celebrate even in the midst of a pandemic. As challenging as things were, we could celebrate a continued improvement in our trash efficiency even through the pandemic. We could continue to celebrate an improvement in our sales dollars per complaint even through the pandemic and so look we didn't have a lot of good news to share hey we lost this customer we lost this volume of business we got this number of people sick we got to wear masks all the time all the things that we kept imposing on folks that weren't positive pieces of news to be able to stop monthly and say okay that's great we got to be honest about what's happening in the world but we can also celebrate that we're still going here and we're still getting better and that we're going to be better even on the other side of this and so that means a lot to people and to continue to celebrate companion of the month and things that folks are doing to contribute positively to everything that's happening here and finding metrics that we could continue to celebrate even during financially challenging times, I think is super important because there wasn't a lot of positive things to hold on to in or out of work. And so we we, we got to try to create those moments and we're not trying to just manufacture those out of nothing for the sake of... of celebrating things. I mean, these are true things that we do believe long-term are going to have hugely positive impacts on the business. And so it's been great to be able to celebrate those and continue to do so as we wind through this experience.
0: I love that. And Josh, this was such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your very unique philosophies on metrics and how you're finding success and things to celebrate with the entire bakery team. It's, it's really cool. And I'm excited for next week because we are going to go in a totally different direction and we're going to move away from those hard metrics to (laughs) talking about how you learned some lessons from improv on how to create a successful business. So I'm excited for that one too.
1: Me too. We'll just keep going here and see how we do.
0: I love it. All right, Josh, thanks so much. And I will talk to you next week. All right, have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Troubleshooting Innovation. And a special thank you to our sponsor, AB North America. With quality bakery ingredient solutions, backed by both leading technology and technical support, AB North America supports industrial and artisan bakers and reminds you that who's behind you matters. Learn more at abmna.com.